Lord, we thank you very, very much for our time. God, you are so good. And every time we open up the word, we get to see you in action. We get to see what you're doing. We get to see how you're carrying out all of your plans that you have made from before time existed. We get to see your might. We get to see your majesty. We get to see your grace and your mercy. Uh, We get to see your compassion. We get to see uh, your patience with a bunch of boneheads like us. And Lord, I'm thankful for that. Lord, your ways are higher than our ways. And we gather here humbly opening the word because we want to understand your ways and submit to them. (coughs) Lord, we know that our created purpose on this earth is to, to put your glory on display, to carry out what it is that is your will, to not live according to our own purposes, but to humbly submit to yours. And in large part, that may mean repenting from ours. Lord, I pray that you would give us that insight that we need tonight to live according to your purposes. I pray that you would help us to endure, to persevere. Uh, this is like week 60 in Genesis or something like that. And, uh, and uh, we're like barely halfway through. And I just pray that we would understand that your word is still doing what it has always done. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And uh, we thank you for this time. And we submit to you. And we humble ourselves before you. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I mentioned in the prayer, just persevering through things. Open up to Genesis 28. We, we are starting a new chapter tonight. Um, two week, these last two weeks, we haven't met on Wednesday nights. And so I guess three weeks ago now, we finished uh, Genesis 27. And uh, upon doing that, uh, my wife told me that... Um, she said, are we still in 27 or are we moving on to 28? This was after the study, after, you know, I poured my heart into it. And, uh, and she said, um, she said, are we still in 27 or are we, are we moving on to 28? And I said, yeah, we're going to be moving on to 28 next time we meet. And her exact words were, thank goodness. It felt like we were in 27 forever. Um, as a teacher, I apologize for making it so arduously painful and uh, hard. Um, but uh, I think that's the way it should be. It, you know, in 27, I'm not trying to make an excuse. My wife was cruel that night. Um, uh, uh, but I think it should feel like that a little bit. You know, as we're reading about the constant, stubborn, foolish, hard-heartedness of such a blessed people, it should feel tedious sometimes. I mean, it feels like that when we walk together. You know, when you're walking with each other and you see someone persisting in a sin, sometimes you're just like, good night, stop it, quit it. Why, why are we having the same conversation? Sometimes it feels like that. And we persevere through these things because God tells us to. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it talks about Scripture being, being breathed out by God. And it says that it is accomplishing some very specific things. It equips us to be um, ready for every good work. It uh, rebukes us, it warns us, it prepares us. And that's what is happening as we go through, through the next verse. And so I encourage you all to continue to endure. Another thought that I wanted to capture before we jump into Genesis 28 is this. Um, God is doing what his plan was from before time existed. We're getting to see this played out. I really hope that any time we gather to open the word that we really value what we're getting to do. 
This is God's plan that he made before time existed. And then he created time. And we're going to see this plan played out. We have a record. By God's breathed out word, we have a record of getting to recount his wonderful deeds like we did on Sunday. The Psalm 9, 1 through 2. The wholehearted worshiper recounts the deeds of the Lord. You've got to know the deeds of the Lord to recount them. And, and, and in these studies, that's, that, that all kind of works together. But I hope that we value this, and we're getting to see what his plan was from before time existed. He's redeeming a people for himself out of the world. Uh, he's changing people. <coughs> um, I realized when I jumped into 28 to start studying uh, again in it this last week, I was just kind of like tired of Jacob, and I was tired of Isaac, and I was tired of Rebecca, and I was just kind of tired of their, their junk. Just like, great, now he's leaving home. Now I bet he's going to whine in the wilderness. I bet Rebecca's whining. Because I mean, it's just kind of getting tired of all these things. And one of the things that I realized is um, I'll get really bogged down if I lose sight of God's handiwork in this. If it's just a story about a family in a long time ago in a faraway land kind of deal, like a fairy tale, it's not going to keep us. It's not, that doesn't engage us. That doesn't change our life. That doesn't equip us for every good work. But if we see God's handiwork in the whole thing, your life is actually changed as you engage it. You are equipped. You are better um, prepared for what God has for you. Um, a question that I thought of is, is, do you believe that people can change the way that they changed in chapter 27? Remember in chapter 27 where Isaac's trembling violently? Who fooled me? I've been fooled. And I gave the blessing away. And then in this moment of clarity, he says, and it shall be. That's, yeah, that's how it's going to be. He's blessed. And we know from Hebrews that that was something that happened in faith. We see God interceding in his life and changing him. And do you believe that can still happen? Because if we believe that, then we pray to that end. We persevere through hard seasons. Or do you write people off with phrases like, uh, they're never going to change, they've always been this way, uh, they're a lost cause. Given all that God's been doing from before time existed, it would be a real tragedy for a people of God, blessed abundantly, to grow cold and skeptical to the thought that really bad people can change. We were all there and are still there and sometimes wake up there and need that new mercy in the morning. We can't grow cold and skeptical to the fact that people change. That's when the church becomes inward focused and we just want to, you know, keep it in here and we'll do what we do and we won't, you know... We don't want to risk anything because, because you know, it may be a hard, a hard journey. We can't grow cold and skeptical to the thought that really bad people can change, that God-haters can one day become God-fearers and worshipers. Um, it's happened with each of us. The concept should not be foreign. Rather, the reality should uh, be embraced by people who do have hope in every circumstance because of Jesus. So I just want to encourage you as we jump into 28... People can change. Like, we communicate the truth of the gospel. We share the good news, glad tidings of great joy that should be for all people because we believe that God actually changes people. And he's redeeming people for, for his glory. And so because his glory is linked to these people being redeemed, we should care about them changing. And we can't grow cold and skeptical to those things. And I think that needs to be on the forefront of our minds as we go into Genesis 28. So turn to Genesis 28 and we'll read it aloud. This is where Rebekah has told Jacob, hey, uh, Esau's comforting himself by wanting to kill you. 
Anytime someone is comforted by the thought of killing someone else, they're troubled. That's a bad deal. And so here, uh, Rebecca says, go to uh, my brother's house until he gets over it. That's the big plan. And so we find ourselves in 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Yeah, and then it ended with this weird deal about her life's miserable because of the Hittite women. But we'll get into that later. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padanaram, Padanarama, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Yes, they're cousins, but it's not so weird here as it is now. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be a company of peoples. May he give the blessing (coughs) of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padanaram to uh, Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badonaram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Badonaram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, uh, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his, his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboeth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in a place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This should sound familiar to us. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and I will keep, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Okay, verses 1 through 2, we see that Isaac called Jacob, blessed him, directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from, from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. What's the master plan here? What's the big plan? Esau wants to kill you, here's the plan. What is it? Leave? 
Leave, go get hitched. Not to a Canaanite woman. Marry your cousin. Maybe we should reword that. Sounds awkward. Yeah, stay there until you get called back. And really here, they're just saying a little while. The thing that we know ahead of time is that um, through all this lying, through all this deceit, what they're doing is they're finding themselves in a situation where as he leaves and he goes away from home, this is actually the last time that Rebecca sees him. Rebecca dies before he returns. It's pretty heartbreaking. It's pretty sad. If this was a family we actually knew, we'd think, wow, that's really tragic. Um, but here, they're going away. And what do we already know about Laban? What do we know about him? What have we seen about him before? He's an opportunist. Uh, and where do we see that? Laban, Rebecca's brother. Remember when... Uh, yeah, Eliezer went to get the wife, and who greeted him? Oh, Laban, yeah, I've prepared the house for you. We've been expecting you, and he hadn't. I mean, he's a total opportunist, and he was trying to get a little more out of the deal uh, than maybe he should have, and so that's, that's what we know about him. We've already had a little insight into this guy that he's, he's not really um, <coughs> a straight-laced, God-fearing man. Rather, he's an opportunist. Um, God must be active in the life of his children for them to be guarded, you know, one of the things that sometimes as parents, uh, we just try to shield our children from the bad people, which to an extent, I think that's very wise. I don't think it's foolish to just drop them off at the bar and pick them up later as though it was a daycare. It's good for you to shield your children from bad people. However, it's, that's not enough. Here, they have no, no other option that they see but to send their child, who's 70, awkwardly, <laughs> to Laban, an opportunist. Um, we cannot trust our plans and parenting above trusting God. There has to be a trust in God here, and we know that he was blessed faithfully. We know that even though it looks like a mess, God has interceded, and these are his chosen people. These are our patriarchs in the faith. And so we have to trust that, that God is at work here, and we have to trust that it's not like, oh, that was a bad move. They, sent, they should have sent him to anyone but Laban. Maybe this was their best option here, but there has to be a trust in God, and you have to trust God's ways as well. When is the last time that you prayed that God would specifically be active in your child's life? The reason I ask that is because as a parent, I know it's easy to kind of try to do a checklist. Like, okay, we did our catechism. We prayed. We talked about how we use our words today. Uh, she only hit her sister five times instead of like ten. It was good. And you kind of just kind of get into this rhythm of uh, this is what I do when I'm a parent. But we got to be on our knees before the Lord asking God to guide them. Asking God to protect them, asking God to equip them, asking God to quicken their minds to things that are beyond their understanding otherwise. Because it's not just because they're babies that they don't understand. Adults don't understand either unless God quickens your mind to have an understanding in the work of the Spirit to understand who He is and what He does. And so in, in our parenting, we've got to ask for wisdom, protection, guidance for our children. Then in verse 3 through 5, this is a pretty big deal. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel. This is a transference of power. This is a big moment. Um, why do you think that Isaac blesses Jacob again? Because he already blessed him, right? Remember the goat hair thing? Why do you think he blesses him again here? Uh, 
Yeah, there's a, there's a confirmation happening here that's really important. This is, uh, um, if this had not taken place, another way to say it, <coughs> if this had not taken place, <coughs> how would Jacob look back at leaving home? If this confirmation didn't happen here, and Jacob looked back at the time where he left home to become a man at 70, um, what, what do you think he would have thought of had this not taken place? Walking away with a swindled blessing. That's a great way of putting it. See, now what happens here is there's a transference of power. The, the blessing that was resting from God on Abraham has now made its way to Jacob. And now when he looks back, Jacob can view the blessing with joy, not grief. And so there's a lot of grace wrapped up in this little piece of the chapter. That this, this blessing is confirmed as he is sent on his way. Now, we go into the part of, uh, with Esau here. Um, what is Esau trying to do? Uh, Esau saw that Isaac had been blessed. He saw that his parents didn't like Canaanite women, so he married an Ishmaelite. What's, Isaac, or what's Esau trying to do here? <coughs> yeah, there's this weird thing where he's still trying to earn the blessing. They don't like Canaanite women. So what does he do? He marries a Ishmaelite woman who's not a Canaanite. You see it? It's like, it's kind of like mom doesn't want me to get a tattoo on my chest, so I'm going to get it on my arm, and that'll please them. You see what I'm saying? Like it's kind of this weird way of thinking that's really carnal where it's like, um, they don't like Canaanite women. It looks like my brother who's got the blessing, the birthright, is, is living it up. I'm going to marry an Ishmaelite. Maybe that'll please him, even though he's like working on multiple wives here. Um, He is, uh, one commentator said, we do nothing effectually until we tear up our sins by the roots and thoroughly devote ourselves to God. What we're seeing here is Esau's trying to go through some of the motions that look right. Now, this should be pretty familiar to us. Going through some of the motions that look right. Another commentator who was really specific, and I really love this, he said, much commoner the hypocrisy is, much commoner than hypocrisy is this dim-sided, blundering stupidity. Go easy on your words there. Much commoner than hypocrisy is this dim-sided, blundering stupidity of the really profane worldly man who thinks that he can take rank with men whose nature God has changed by the mere imitation of some of their ways. Who thinks that as he cannot with great without great labor and without too seriously endangering his hold on the world, do precisely uh, what God requires, God may uh, be expected to be satisfied with something like it. That is just a really, 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 really wordy way of saying this guy goes beyond hypocrisy to just blundering foolishness. What Esau has done is he's saying, it looks like they're blessed because they're doing these things. I'll do some of them, but not actually be devoted to God. You see this? Like, oh, they're not supposed to marry Canaanite women. Okay, I'll marry Ishmaelite. That's cool. That's like saying, oh, they go to church. I'll go to church on Sunday. But that doesn't mean you're wholly devoted to the Lord. Or uh, it seems like the really strong believers are in a small group. I guess I'll be in a small group. That doesn't mean you're wholly devoted to the Lord. You might just be going through the actions. At the end of that quote, it says that um, without too great a labor, without too seriously endangering his hold on the world, 
the expectation is that God would be satisfied with something like it. You look Christian-y. You're a Christian-y speaking person. And surely God would be pleased with something like Christianity-ishness. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's not really the real deal. There's not devotion there. There's not an aim to put sin to death and be completely devoted to the Lord and submit to Jesus. He's just going through the motions and trying to gain favor. It's works-based salvation at its best. Esau is saying, I can do some of that stuff. That's not enough. If you see the call on your life by God, through Christ, by teachers in the church to, to submit to the Lord and to humble yourself at the foot of the cross and to to repent from your sin and to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. When you see that, if your response is, I can do some of that stuff, that's a problem. Because the right response is, without Christ, I'm not going to be able to do any of that stuff. Esau here is saying, I don't need the blessing. I can do some of the stuff. But that's carnal. That's fleshly. And that's worldly. And so he sets an example for us here in really just works-based a works-based aim at trying to be blessed by God. Though he doesn't care about God, he just really wants a blessing. It's kind of like, hey, uh, well, they seem to have their finances in order, and they're church-going folk, so I'm going to go to church. Maybe I'll get my finances in order. It really has nothing to do with God. It just has everything to do with this other blessing that you like, and you think you can do some stuff to make it happen. Does that make sense? Y'all are saying yes? We'll move on. What does God require of us? What is it that he requires? Just don't marry Canaanites? What? Wholeheartedness. Not, not half-heartedness, wholeheartedness. What, is he, what else does he require? Faith? Relationship? Obedience? Steadfastness. Okay, all, so far I haven't heard anything that we can actually do. He, he requires, does he require partial righteousness or fairly right people? People who are fairly right in their ways? He requires perfect righteousness. That's what God requires. When you hear that for the first time or the thousandth time, you tremble. Because God requires perfect righteousness. It's, it's okay, um, you had a great day and you only cussed once. God requires perfect righteousness. You deserve his wrath. Oh no, there must be another way. Yes, that's where Jesus comes in. God requires perfect righteousness. Christ's righteousness is counted as ours. Christ is not someone who just enables us to do some good things. Christ's perfect life must be counted as yours or else you are bankrupt before God and deserving of his wrath because his wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And so the way you're living keeps him from being seen clearly, and that's where his wrath is directed. But if Christ's righteousness is counted as yours, you rejoice and you worship and you're wholehearted in it because he's made you to be so. What are some ways that we can imitate Christian ways? What are some ways that we can just be Christian-y? The doables? Don't, the don'tables? Yeah. Read your Bible. Pray. Carry a big Bible. It's all marked up. Drag it behind your car and make it look like you use it a lot. <clears throat> what are some other Christian-y things we can do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. The cubicled cross. The cross cubicled, crossled cubic something. Ichthu yeah. Ichthusi. Ichthusises. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole other thing. Hmm? Preach. Teach the Wednesday night Bible study. Give. Missions. Every single part of everything we do as believers can just be Christian-y. Christ's righteousness is counted as ours. That's the only way we have a good standing before the Lord. We got to see the foolishness here of Esau, who just tries to marry someone who's not a Canaanite, thinking that he could earn some blessing. We don't do what we do to earn blessing. It's a response because God has counted Christ's righteousness as ours, and we persevere in the truth, and we humble ourselves before him, and we count ourselves very blessed. When that's the truth, when you see that you are completely and totally depraved and crossways with the Lord, and the only way that you aren't receiving his wrath is that someone absorbs that wrath, Christ, that's propitiation, the wrath absorber, and you are immensely blessed. And that keeps us from being high and mighty and, and um, uppity and rude about our faith. Those things don't go together. Um, it's not enough to go through the motions. Esau, to make sure we're clear, he still cares nothing about God. I mean, he tried to marry a non-Canaanite. He didn't care about God. Esau is a frightening picture of a man who gives way to the solicitations of the appetite, the flesh, and he angrily plays the victim, continuing to try to earn that which cannot be earned. He gave way to the solicitations of the appetite, he tries to play the victim, and he tries to earn what you can't earn. There's no persevering in faith, there's no moving forward and producing fruit for the glory of God if you're still trying to earn what can't be earned. You accept it freely. The next section is Jacob's Ladder. This is crazy. There is more weird commentary and thoughts and art on this <laughs> issue than like anything we've studied in Genesis so far. It's very popular. Many bands wrote songs about it. Anyone want to take some shots? What are some bands that wrote songs about Jacob's Ladder? There's one, there's one big one, which was written by Zeppelin. This is Led Zeppelin 4 album. Black Dog 4-6, fantastic album. I can't publicly recommend it, though. <laughs> Zeppelin, anyone else? No, they're, they're horrible. They dissolved. Um, it, can y'all think of any other bands that wrote songs about that? There's been some hymns. There have been some hymns. Has anyone seen any artwork or paintings trying to represent this? It's really interesting. Some of them are a little backwards. Most of them that I saw today were backwards. Rush wrote a song in 1980. Any Rush fans? Yeah, that's right. I saw the bumper stickers out there. Huey Lewis wrote a song. No. I'm not a Huey Lewis fan all that much either. There's that one song that was on that movie track that you can listen to when your wife's there. Um, uh, as I read through this next section, Jacob's Ladder, what I want you all to do is import your senses into this. Imagine what this is like, because this isn't just some symbolically representative section of Scripture that symbolically represents symbolism. What this is, is something that really happened. This really happened. So what I want y'all to do 
It, one of the things when you're studying your Bible, you, you observe and you observe and you observe and you observe and you observe. And one great way to, most of your Bible study time should be spent observing. Not just trying to, what's the message? What's the point? We should look at what's there, what's being said, what's being shared. God showed up. God said something to someone. What did he say? How did he say it? Was he asleep? Was he awake? Was it a vision? Was it a dream? What was it? One of the best ways for us to really have a good understanding of Scripture is observation. We've got to observe, observe, and then we interpret and we apply. But with, we won't get a good interpretation and we'll get an even worse application to our lives if we don't actually sit and observe what's here. And as we're observing what's here, you import your senses into this Scripture. Picture what this is like. Picture Jacob on his journey. Picture, try to sense what it feels like to leave home. He's just a kid. He's just a boy. And he's leaving for the first time. He's away from home. For the first time his whole life, he's away from home. And it's night, and he's alone. And I want you all to import your senses into this as I read it. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. It's likely that Joseph is, Jacob is alone. I wrote Joseph in my notes. I read ahead a little bit this week. Uh, it's likely that Jacob is alone. Uh, his trade, the only trade that he would know, aside from cooking, um, would be uh, shepherding, probably light shepherding, the little sheep. And uh, so he probably has a staff in hand. He's been blessed by his father. He's heard much about God. He's heard a lot about God and his family. He's heard about the God of his grandfather Abraham. He's heard about the God of his father, his father Isaac. He received the family blessing and birthright. He's away from home for the first time. He's like 70. He is, um, it's nighttime, and he's tired. To this point, who has Jacob, Jacob, who has Jacob never had an interaction with personally? God. It's a big deal. You're blessed of God. You're the offspring of the patriarchs. You have the birthright. All that was on Abraham, you know, sand, numerous as the sand and the stars, all this that you see, north, south, east, west, the land of the promise, multiple offspring. What else do we know about Jacob right now? He's not married. It's similar to the thing that we heard with Abraham. Remember when, when essentially Jesus, we don't have any reason that God showed up in any other form in the flesh other than Jesus, and he's having lunch in the tent with Abraham and Sarah, and he says, this time I'll show up next year, y'all are going to have a son, and Sarah's eavesdropping, and goes, ha! And he says, why did Sarah do that? And, and Abraham's like, she didn't do that, what are you talking about? And God just straight calls him out. And it was funny because they were old and they didn't have, they, her womb had been closed for a long time. The way with women had ceased. He's not even married and he's alone. And here we're hearing a similar um, promise. And it's night. And this is, he's never, he's never prayed. We have no sign that Jacob's ever prayed to God. He's probably heard about God a lot, but he hasn't prayed. And we don't see God interacting specifically with Jacob until this point. So Jacob lays his head upon a rock, tired from traveling. His mind is reeling from the previous day's events. He's uncertain of what's to come. This is how it often goes with new believers. 
And I remember at the beginning of this study, I said, we got to be mindful that people can change. That God changes people. You don't change anybody. You can try, but you can't change anybody. If you don't let that go quickly, you'll be a miserable person your whole life. God changes people, and you must continue to point them to God. But this is how it goes with new believers. They hear what God has claimed, like Jacob. They hear what God has done, like Jacob served in his home. They um, hear what God has promised and is going to do. For us, we would call this sharing the gospel with someone. You're sharing the good news. This is who God is. This is what he's done. This is what he's going to do. Then after hearing these things for the first time, some are engaged by God in a personal relationship. Some are. It's amazing that any are. And some are. Initiated by God and carried on by God. And this often happens at the point that a man or a woman has been brought to the end of themselves. Much like Jacob. Jacob, you got the birthright. You got the blessing. You're 70. It's time to get out of the house. And you're by yourself in the wilderness, even though you are among the most blessed of the earth. You're sleeping with a rock as a pillow. Are you at your low point, Jacob? Are you ready to hear from God? That's where he is. That's how it is with a lot of people. They hear about God. We can't have this expectation that we're going to go out and serve the community and say, can I tell you about Jesus? Yes, he died for your sins. You've got to accept him and follow him wholeheartedly. And that that person's going to say, heavenly sovereign father, you are so good for bringing this person to me. I could trust you completely and I understand your ways and I'm going to follow you implicitly from this day forward. I repent of everything that I ever did because of this three-second conversation. It often takes time. It often takes a lot of time, but God changes people, and this is how it is. Here, Jacob is in the family of believers, the family that is blessed, and he's probably heard about a lot. This is the first time we see him actually having a relationship with God. Look at verse uh, 11, the second part of verse 11. It said, um, that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, anytime you hear in this God-breathed word, you hear, behold, behold, behold. This is a, a moment to take in. This is a moment to pay attention to. Behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold... The Lord stood above it. He is off of his throne and standing above this and said, God speaking, behold, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, Jacob, who's old without a wife. Behold, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Remember that Isaiah passage? I will accomplish all my purposes. What does Jacob see in his dream? What did we just recount? What, what are some observations? What did we just behold? There's a ladder. The angels are ascending and descending. God standing. And what else? Things are going on, yeah. 
Yeah, it's not just people floating around on clouds with harps. Go figure. There's some stuff going on. There's some action involving heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. There's stuff going on between the two all the time. These angels ascending and descending. God standing. And what is he doing? He's talking. He's speaking to Jacob. Goat-haired Jacob is being engaged in a conversation, well, not a conversation, and shut up and listen by God. This is the first personal interaction between God and Jacob. Who initiates the the interaction? God. Yes, Jacob did not build the ladder. Who speaks first? God. Who doesn't speak until the dream's over? Jacob. Jacob was in exile, alone at night. Picture it. Sleeping with a rock for a pillow, fleeing from the harm that could be caused by his angry brother Jacob, who's hairy. He's away from his mama. After seven decades of being with mama, that was probably hard. It's really hard to picture, but it was there. Away from everything that was familiar. Everything that had ever been familiar to him, he'd been torn from it, ripped out of it. It's almost like he had this comfort zone, and God said, I'm going to use you, and before I use you, I'm going to rip you out of this comfort zone, and I'm going to make you know me in a way that you have never known me before. I've seen it in a bajillion people's lives. I could probably say, tell me about that in your life, and y'all could tell me one thing after another thing after another thing. You're in this comfortable place, this thing that you know, this thing that's familiar. You're ripped out of it. You think, what just happened? And then God comes in and says, look at me. Behold, behold, behold. I'm God, and I'm going to accomplish all my purpose. And I want you to see some things. that I, I, You're going to see things that you have no business knowing other than the fact that I'm full of grace, and I show you these things. And I'm going to use you as I see fit, as a vessel to be poured out, as I prepared you for. This is my plan. That's what God does. Has anyone ever experienced anything like that? Ripped out of the comfort zone? What the heck just happened? Kind of like birth, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. When else in Genesis have we seen something similar, similar to a ladder to heaven? This should, you, this, there should be things ringing in your head like, oh, that sounds familiar. When, yeah, Babel. The Tower of Babylon, what happened there? What happened in Babel? It was only like a year and a half ago. <laughs> Yeah, everyone had the same language. They decided, hey, we can get there. Just like Esau. It was their version of saying, we can marry a non-Canaanite. I can build a tower. Let's all bring all of our resources together and we'll get to heaven on our own grounds. We'll do the work. We'll accomplish what, what we want to accomplish. And what happened? They start. Patrick's redneck commentary, they started talking funny. (laughs) Yeah, their language was confused. And uh, God showed up and essentially said, nope, that's not going to happen. And he scattered them. He confused their language. It's hard when your buddy that you're building blocks with starts going, and you can't understand him. That's awkward and weird. And at some point, everyone's so out of the loop on the conversation that you stop building because it's like, well, clearly we can't do this because God interceded and said you can't do this. What is the difference between the Tower of Babylon and the Ladder of Jacob? God sent the ladder. What else? What's another difference? No, it didn't get high enough. 
Yeah. Didn't make it to the place it needed to get for the angels. What's another difference between the Tower of Babylon and the Ladder of Jacob? God was not at the top of that tower. Again, it was a little short. It didn't work. Yeah, I'm so glad you didn't use the word attempt in the second part of that. Yeah, well, the first was man's attempt. We're going we're gonna to muster what we got, and we're going to get all of our resources because we're pretty powerful, and we're going to make this happen. And it didn't happen. Lots of work by man. The, second, the other one, the ladder from heaven, is God accomplishing his purpose. You see the differences here. See, there's a lot we can learn um, in this. One is being built up by man's works, and the other is coming down by God's grace. What we're seeing here is a beautiful, and there's a reason lots of songs have been written about it, and artwork has been done about it, though a lot of it is backwards. It's a beautiful picture of grace. This is a wonderful, wonderful picture of grace. A destitute, hungry, tired, no change of clothes, no riches sent with him. In a, you know, at night on this mountain, and God shows up and initiates the whole thing and reveals himself to a swindler. This is a beautiful picture of grace. The reason I say that it is backwards is because most of the artwork on Jacob's ladder that I have viewed shows people climbing the ladder, people doing all the work to go up as if it's a ladder from earth to heaven. I believe it to be a ladder from heaven to earth that bridges that gap that was initiated by God. I don't think it went up from earth to heaven. I think it came down from heaven to earth. And a lot of the... uh, A lot of belief is that that ladder's there so we can work really hard and climb it. And the reality is, is the ladder is representative of something else. Interesting, the top of the ladder reaches to heaven, but I would offer that the ladder comes down from heaven, not up from the earth. What do you guys think the ladder represents? Sunday school answer. Jesus. Very good, Patrick. Two gold stars for you. Um... What are some ways that the ladder could be representative of Christ, symbolic of Christ, typological in a sense? Sent by God to earth from, okay. Mm-hmm. It's the only way. Bridges the gap between heaven and earth. Turn to Romans 5. Romans 5, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say Jacob's experiencing a kind of peace and a kind of presence that he has never before experienced. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's Jesus bridging that gap between heaven and earth. Turn to, uh, what's that next one, John 151? Yeah, John 151. In case it's not clear, turn to John 151. John is calling uh, his first disciples disciples. 
Um, here we have uh, Nathaniel and Philip and um, uh, here he, he's responding to them. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And in verse 50, Jesus answers him and says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. Because Nathaniel came and said, no, who's this? And Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, no one saw me under the fig tree. You must be God, I believe. And it's, God's like, that's nothing. I got way more to do. I'm going to blow your mind is what I'm about to do. And here he says, you'll see greater things than these. I'm going to rock your world. I'm going to turn it upside down. And I'm going to make you see things you've never seen before. And in verse 151, he says, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see the connection there? It's really directly connected. On the Son of Man. Not just a random wooden ladder. On the Son of Man. Jesus bridges that gap for us. Um... This is a really beautiful picture of grace, unexpectedly engaged by and loved by the one true God forever. The cool thing here is that not only does Jacob now uh, sense and experience God's presence really for the first time in his life when he's been ripped out of his comfort zone and he's thought, what is this? What is going on? This isn't how it happened. You got you to know there was probably doubt there. You got to know there was fear there. And here he experiences God for the first time. He senses and experiences his presence, but the, maybe even better than that, is he knows that he will never be without it again. That's something that a believer clings to. It's not, you don't just point to an experience that you had once. Jacob's not going to leave here and go tell everybody for the rest of his life about the night on the mountain. That's cool, and it's worth noting. But God didn't stop with Jacob there. God used him, as God saw fit, as a vessel of mercy to be poured out as God saw fit. So when someone says, well, tell me about your, your faith, tell me about your journey, you don't just point back to that one night on the mountain. God uses people. God's redeeming them for his glory, not just for like one neat, neat vision of a ladder. Jacob didn't just have the Jacob's ladder ministry from there on out. He was used by God as God saw fit, poured out as a vessel of mercy, and he knew that from that point forward, he would never be without God. God says, I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. These are the kinds of promises that should change us. They should forge, us, uh, forge in us a new reason and a new ability uh, to persevere through hard times, to understand uh, that the hand of God is certain even in times that are seemingly uncertain to us. Um, there was a commentary that said, the vision shows Jacob that his path leads to God. He doesn't know all the other stuff he's going to encounter along the way. He's still in the wilderness without a wife, an old man who's been promised numerous offspring. So he doesn't know all the details. He doesn't know what's going to happen when he gets to Laban's house. He doesn't know if maybe Esau is going to sneak up on him before he takes another few steps. He, there's a lot of uncertainty. But what he does know is that his path leads to God. And that helps him to be sustained through all other things. That helps him to persevere and endure through hard times. It is God who occupies the future. 
That's what we've got to keep our eyes on. Scripture says, do not become consumed with all the worldly things going, around, going on around you, but set your eyes on the things above. God. Like the point of the, there's a great book written called God is the Gospel. You don't just need mercy and need grace and need Jesus for a better life. The point in all those things is that they lead to God. Our eternal treasure is God. And what Jacob is finding out here from God is that in his future, there is God. So whatever else, anything happens, whatever else happens, God is the destination. God is the, at the end of the journey, that's where he is eternally. And if that doesn't cause you to rejoice, and you're like, well, that's kind of boring. That's a problem. That's a real problem. Because he is our treasure. He's not a means to other treasure. He's not there to grant us our three wishes when we get there. He is our treasure. And that changed Jacob, and it should change us. Next week, we'll look at Jacob's response. It's kind of funny. He wakes up, surely, surely this is a holy place. I didn't know God was here. It's like, no, you didn't. It's like this really obvious, kind of silly uh, response. But really what we're going to see next week is that he, uh, it's really kind of the prayer of a baby believer. And... Um, it's funny in some ways, and it causes, it just shows us God's perfect patience in other ways. So let's pray, and we will be dismissed. Lord, you're very, very good to us. I, I'm thankful that that we sit here knowing anything about you and having a personal relationship with you only because of the kind of grace that we see in this chapter, that you in Christ, bridge that gap between heaven and earth that we could never do. We, we saw it fail in Babel. We see it fail in our own lives every day when we just try to go through the motions and be christian But because of grace, we're, we're given that which we could never earn. And that's access to you. And I pray that we would treasure that rightly. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus that we would have any relationship with you. We thank you that in Christ we would be forgiven. We thank you that in Christ our wrath that's due to us is absorbed. We thank you that in Christ perfect righteousness is counted as ours and we don't deserve it at all. And you are so good. I pray that that doesn't depress any of us. I pray that our undeserving nature doesn't just bum us out. But rather I pray that we would rejoice in Christ. And that we would be steadfast and persevere through any part of the journey that may be ahead of us knowing that our destination is God, that we get to be with you eternally. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.